Because no two investors are the same, one size doesn't fit all. There's more to it. At S&P Dow Jones Indices, we offer index strategies for all types of investments. Comprehensive ESG solutions, core retirement strategies, multi-asset diversification, and new ways of thinking about risk management and income. They're all in one place. Express your investment views and give yourself the freedom to go anywhere with S&P Dow Jones Indices. Search Indexology on the web or hashtag Indexology on Twitter and LinkedIn. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain you, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, what could really derail the big stocks in this market? After a sedate day where the Dow gained 165 points, S&P advanced 0.57%, the Nasdaq climbed to 1.24%, what would make us want to dump sell, sell, sell. the red-hot stocks that have been leading us higher? I don't see this rally collapsing under its own weight, which is what happened the last time we had an explosive tech rally in 2000. Back then, we got in ahead of ourselves. We saw the potential of the Internet, but the actual technology wasn't there yet. These days, we all laugh at the dot-com casualties from back then, like the Pets.com, the Infospaces. The truth is, they were ahead of their time. Pets.com could have been Chewy. Infospace could have been Google. The ideas were good. They were just very premature. But I want to take on the hateful 1999 analogy, when, of course, remember, it shot up and then in 2000. I want to take it on directly. Because you need to understand why it's misleading, why it's constantly brought up, and whether it even makes sense to do so. Because they are, uh, let's say, surface-level parallels, but not that much otherwise. Back then, we had two markets, the prosaic S&P 500 and the go-go NASDAQ, which is a little like today. Only one of those markets was real, the S&P. And I think that that's a major difference this time around. I'm more confident in today's tech companies, even if the valuation seems stretched and the size seems large. First, ask yourself, are the companies that have been leading this rally profitable? Or are they saying it's better to lose money now so they can dominate their industries later? We had a ton of money losers in the 90s. When I started the street.com in 1995, the venture capitalists I met with all said the same thing. The opportunity was too big for an online stock journal to care about profitability. Spend, spend, spend. Success was measured in eyeballs and, pay, and page clicks, uh, not earnings or revenues. How, how'd that turn out? Mm. All right. There were nearly 300 Internet IPOs in 1999 alone, and losing money was their mantra. Only a handful of them survived because of that mantra. Now, though, most of the leaders are making fortunes. This market's generals, Apple, Facebook, Alphabet, Amazon, and Microsoft, are some of the most profitable companies in history. Sure, Microsoft failed to deliver a blowout on some of its profit lines tonight, but the entire numbers were good. And some are worried, I would say needlessly, about a slowdown in their cloud division. I think that that will be, let's say, um, debunked. 24 hours from now. Still, if you look at the top 20 companies in the Nasdaq in 1999, not one of them looked like today's winners. Second, some of the larger operators from the dot-com era turned out to be either ethically challenged or outright fraudulent with made-up financials. I don't see anything like that right now. I know Tesla's had some accounting issues, but nobody's really questioned those numbers anymore, especially if there's magnificent series of numbers top and bottom line this very evening. There are real cars being sold. If they could manufacture more cars, they'd have more sales, which is not something Ford or GM could claim. 
They need less capacity. Tesla can use all the capacity it can get. I don't see any WorldComs here. The classic case of fraudulent numbers. Not even sure it would be possible to pull up that kind of scam now. Just too much scrutiny. Third, during the dot-com period, there were tons and tons and tons of insider selling. The executives and early investors couldn't wait to, hit the, to ring the register. They knew. They all knew. See, you'd have secondary offerings pretty much every day of the week. When online growth sputtered, the largest dot-coms knew their days were numbered. If management could sell the whole company, they at least sold, well, if they couldn't get it done, if they could not merge, they sold all their holdings. Oh, it was horrible. Again, there's nothing like that now. Sure, there have been a, a few companies that got acquired for big premiums, but almost all of those deals failed. Think Time Warner, AOL, and I'm not seeing a lot of dumping of stock from insiders. These days, big tech acquisitions tend to be few and far between. When they happen, they're pretty darn successful. I want you to think Facebook buying Instagram, a genius move. Microsoft snapping up LinkedIn. Google acquiring YouTube. The only real questionable decision, Amazon's curious purchase of Whole Foods. But that's the exception that proves the uh, entire rule, because Whole Foods is a supermarket, not a tech company. Fourth and finally, in the dot-com era, there was a broad coalition among analysts, investment bankers, fast money clients, hedge funds, venture capitalists, to bring just about anything public to get it off their sheets. The deals came fast and furious, so fast that we had double the number of companies we have now. And many were simply set up. Uh, they weren't even set up to survive unless everything went perfectly. They needed smartphones and streaming video five or ten years ahead of schedule. The participants in this Fogel rush made absurd profits on the backs of you, the individual investors who financed it all, got stuck holding the bag, which is why so many people left the market. Regular people were lured into the casino by the promise of instant riches and ended up with long-term poverty. The hucksters, they made out like bandits. Again, we don't have anything like that now. This is 2020, not 2000. The smartphone is ubiquitous, and it spawned a collection of successful industries. High-speed broadband's everywhere. We now have a cloud to migrate to, replacing expensive on-premise software. These are real companies making real money. I don't see a lot of hucksters. Remember when Elon Musk was supposed to be a huckster? I don't know. To me, it looks like that he deserves what he's gotten, which is a lot of money. All right, that's why I don't see these tech titans collapsing under their own weight. In the current environment, I think they can keep running. Yes, and that includes the stock of Microsoft, where I'm, sure num- I'm pretty sure numbers will be raised and price targets moved up. Well, so what could change things? Wait, what am I worried about? All right, the first, if we, can, if we can contain the pandemic, meaning more testing, more mask wearing, and a new stimulus package, then the big cap tech stocks will become a lot less enticing. Money will flow back into the roughly 300 companies, the S&P 500, that are down for the year. The 300 that benefit from a reopened economy. All right? We'll be going out, traveling, and that means the money from the Kramer COVID-19 winners will rotate into COVID losers. It's just what happens, people. It doesn't, the companies aren't going to change. The shareholder base will. I see this as inevitable because sooner or later we'll get a vaccine. But inevitable does not necessarily mean now or even in the next three months or even in the next six months. To the government. Next week, there are congressional hearings where the heads of Apple, Amazon, Google, and Facebook will have to testify about market concentration and anti-competitive behavior. Meanwhile, Slack just filed an antitrust complaint against Microsoft for illegally stifling competition, allegedly. If there's an antitrust crackdown on big tech, you'll see some real declines here because then we'll have a lot less visibility into their future earnings streams. Sure, some of these companies are worth more broken up, but that's a long, convoluted way of thinking. Third is China. If the White House goes into a full-bore Cold War with China, and it does look like we might, many of these companies will lose a major chunk of their sales, especially Apple. If President Trump presses too hard, then Apple stock gets hammered. That's the largest company, and it can drag down the rest of Fang, even though they have mostly much less China exposure. And that's because of the problem of ETFs. 
They all are joined. Fourth, inflation. Nobody wants to pay up for a growth stock when inflation is raging. The non-index owners will dump them because it's, inflation destroys the value of those big earnings in the out years. Finally, let's consider what Wall Street, let's see, well, let's say most Wall Streeters fear, higher taxes for capital gains. Joe Biden's leading in the polls, and he's proposed taxing capital gains as ordinary income, which is a real possibility if the Democrats also take the Senate. Whether or not you think this is good policy, it would be extremely bad for stock prices. And I'd expect a lot of people want to sell now to get out ahead of it. The bottom line, I don't see this market collapsing on valuation or fraud or insider selling or inflation, which currently not existent, but it can be hurt by the government through antitrust or taxes or new Cold War with China. And most importantly, if we get the pandemic under control, the economy comes roaring back via an extension of a stimulus, big tech will go out of style as people rush for the recovery stocks. That's that recipe for underperformance. And I don't see it being made just yet. Keith in Indiana. Keith. Oh, yeah, buddy. How are you? I am good. How about you? Good, good. My question for you, Jim, is Starbucks. SBUX has been wavering between 70 and a little bit above 83 since like mid-April. I last sold it for a gain at about seventy-five fifty. You know, would it be a good move to buy it back at its current price, even after today's jump in the news of requiring math? Um, I put. Uh, we own Starbucks for Action Alerts plus my Capital Trust. Why? Because it's part of the barbell, along with Disney, that we think if the economy were to reopen successfully, they would do well. But without that, and without a big comeback in China, you have to expect that, that, that Starbucks is going to be stalled here. I don't mind that. I want to wait. I think that when Kevin Johnson builds out his network of smaller stores and China comes back, that stock goes to 100. So I want you to hold on. Mike in South Carolina. Mike. Jimmy Chill, love the show, watch you all the time. Oh, that's fantastic. Thank you. Hey, so I'm interested in a long-term, 30-year com- commercialization of space play, specifically Aerojet, Rocket Times. Yeah, why the hell? Why, why, you know, it has just bothered me tremendously that this stock is as low as it is, because I think it's a terrific company. I, by the way, uh, I was recommending very hard Lockheed Martin. I don't know if people remember that because of Jim Takelet. That's been fantastic. This one I got to look do more of because I think Aerojet Rocketdyne is a great company. I've known those companies. I remember Rocketdyne from the 60s when I studied it. Robert in Ohio, please. Robert. Yes, Robert. I'm interested in an uh, international company. Uh, it's called Lindy, L-I-N-D-E. Uh, we recommended Lindy. We think Lindy is amazing. We like Air Products, and we like Lindy. Recommended Lindy and Air Products when they were allowed when Air Products was allowed to merge uh, with another company that had been one of our favorites. The next thing you know, you got really a slap happy. Uh, duopoly between uh, the, you know, actually there's like three companies that make uh, gas, but because I remember also plug power is, but Lindy's great. Do not worry about investigation. Just get ready to buy more on any decline. It is so good. By the way, air products is very good too. Uh, but Lindy was our favorite when we did the piece. Okay. There are some parallels, but this is not, here's the 1999 list. This is not in keeping with what we see now. Oh, man, tonight, the White House is discussing a short-term extension of unemployment benefits while Congress debates a broader stimulus package. Tonight, I'm going straight to the source and asking House Speaker Nancy Pelosi for an update. Then, a little-known rule that could put retail investors on the back foot. I'll reveal it and what it means for your money and why it shouldn't be put in place. And First Horizon has become one of the largest banks in the South, thanks to that recent merger with Iberia Bank from New Orleans. But it still can't get any love in this market despite its 6% yield. Tonight, I'm sitting down with the CEO to find out if now could be the time to buy. So stay with Kramer. 
Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC. There's one major reason this economy is doing okay. It's on government life support. Normally, double-digit unemployment would be devastating for the country. But thanks to the CARES Act, people who lose their jobs have been getting an extra $600 per week in unemployment benefits. So needed. Unfortunately, that program expires at the end of the month. The last checks actually go out this week. And with COVID cases at terrifying levels, we need another stimulus package. The only way that happens is if the Democrats, Republicans, and Congress make a deal. Not a sure thing. This may be the single most important issue for the stock market right now. So let's go right to the source with Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House, get a better sense of her priorities and where things stand with the negotiations. Speaker Pelosi, welcome back to Mad Money. My pleasure to be with you. Thank you. All right, Madam Speaker, what happens uh, next week? What happens when we don't get the $600 for the men and women who are unemployed, not through their fault, because they're just their jobs are over? Well, uh, let's just hope that we will. Uh, let's, uh, first of all, there are many day, few days left in this week. Uh, at that time, during that time, we hope to see a proposal in writing uh, from the Republicans as to what their priorities are and how much they're willing to invest in the well-being of the American people. So we've, we have ours for two months and one week. We've had uh, the, the HEROES Act on the table, and that's our HEROES Act to open our economy, testing, testing, testing. Uh, on our heroes, that's why it's named that way, uh, to help state and local governments keep uh, health care workers, educators, transportation workers, sanitation workers, the list goes on and on, on the payroll. Many of them are risking their lives to save lives, and now they may lose their jobs. And the third pillar is to put money in the pockets of the American people, employment insurance, direct payments, uh, the uh, employment, uh, some tax credits and the rest in order to um, uh, keep the economy going. But again, it's all a health issue. If right. we keep, if, if we just defeat the virus, we can open up our schools and our economy. Right. No, Madam Speaker, our own Kayla Taus reported earlier today that uh, the Republicans are, are now, have now lowered the amount that they're willing to accept to $400 a month. That's $100 a week. Is there any way that's acceptable to you? Well, no, I, we don't, I don't know that they have gone to that place. And the $600 is relative. In some places, it's a matter of economic survival. In other places, uh, it makes, it's a sweetener. Uh, so we, it, but we have to have the same amount in the whole country because otherwise it's an administrative headache. But let's just go to the heart of the matter. Uh, the stock market, there's a floor there. You know that the Fed and others are pounding away so that there's uh, minimize the risk in the stock market. And that's a good thing. 
It's for our economy. And we think there should be a floor for America's working families and that we should not be firing those who are meeting the needs of the American people because we don't want to spend the, the – some Republicans on the Senate side don't want to spend the money. And we should not be quibbling over two, 400 or 600 when people are in desperate need and have great uncertainty. You know how the markets and the uh, business community doesn't like uncertainty. We shouldn't inject uncertainty further into the lives of America's working families. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the reason why the stock market, which is what I follow, obviously is doing well, is because we have people who otherwise would be, I think, on food lines able to have dignity and get some money from the government for for jobs that they lost. Now, I am concerned about certain, say, $15 million jobs in the rest, 15 million jobs in the restaurant business, hospitality. These are going away because of the need for social distancing. Is there any way in particular to help the people kind of like uh, business interruption insurance for those workers whose companies that they faithfully served at are just closed? Well, I, I, I appreciate your pointing out the hospitality industry. Because, as you know, hospitality industry is a, a, a source of community engagement and involvement. So it's not just about inter, uh, hospitality or just about jobs. It's about a sense of community. But the jobs are what are essential. And I do believe that in the course of the unfolding of the PPP, the Paycheck Protection Program, that we have improved uh, the opportunity for the restaurant industry that's what they tell me anyway. Of course, we're not there yet because you can help people stay open, pay the rent, pay the utilities, all the rest of that, even pay employees. But if you don't have people coming in the doors, you're still having a problem. So that's why we want to put money in the pockets of the American people so that they can, in this consumer economy, spend, inject demand into the economy, create jobs. All right. Now, Madam Speaker, you and I are great sports fans. Unfortunately, you're a Baltimore Raven fan. They're pretty good. But in order to get these teams to play, we're going to have to have testing, testing, testing to the point where I question how athletes, professional athletes, get so much more testing than the rest of us and get rapid fire answers. And the rest of us don't. Instead, we're quarantined at home without being without being productive citizens. Is there a point where the NFL, the NHL, the NBA get too much testing and the rest of us don't get enough? Well, first, let me say I love the Ravens, but the San Francisco 49ers are my home team. Uh, Now, on to the testing. Let's not begrudge uh, the athletes their test. Let's just have more testing for everyone. And that's a decision that this administration has ruled against. Uh, they have. They just keep insisting there are enough tests. We have more tests than this, that, and the other thing. We don't. And the reason we don't have enough tests is because we don't have enough equipment. And the reason that it takes a week or so to get the results of the test is because we don't have enough equipment. If we had the equipment, more people could be tested, three times as many people could be tested, and the, the uh, return, the result of your test could go from one week to one day. And that's why we call upon the president to uh, implement the Defense Production Act so that businesses will be making this equipment, equipment, and then the personal protective equipment that is necessary in our health-serving institutions as well as in our schools and every place where people come in contact with each other. Equipment, equipment, equipment enables us to test, trace, treat, 
socially distance and, and assault this. So again, uh, I think that, uh, I, I don't want to begrudge anybody the test that they have because I know we could do much better. It's not as if they're taking a test that somebody else should have. They're having a test somebody else should have because uh, the Trump administration has, has decided for a long time that we did not need to have that test because, you know, if, if you have tests, then you'll find out uh, what the rate of infection is. But Abbott Labs, largest test maker, has told me that they have more than enough machines and that no one's buying them, that there's just been this gap. I think it's the government's fault. I don't know why that is, that Abbott Labs, the biggest test creator, has spare tests manufacturing capacity that no one's tapping. Well, of course, there's also the question of the billions of dollars that we have given this administration for testing. And what is it that there's this disconnect? It's a distortion about what the uh, rate of infection is and that more testing shows more uh, people who are infected and they don't want that bad news. But again, putting that aside, let's just go forward. Whatever Abbott has, we still need more. Underserved communities, communities of color, rural communities and the rest are just not having the outreach that they need to have. And then the tracing that goes with that is very essential as well. But you have to have also the equipment not only to test, but to evaluate positive or negative in a short period of time. I do want to go back uh, and look back for one thing, which is the... uh the legacy of, of a Representative John Lewis, uh, a person who was a stalwart, who understood the, the way that we need to adjust in this country to bring ourselves up to where everybody is equal. And I thought I should give you a chance to say something. Well, I appreciate your calling attention to John Lewis. For all of us in Congress, it's like the death in the family, the immediate family. I served with him for 33 years. Uh, in the House, and we look forward to paying tribute to him as we lay him to rest uh, within the next several days as the family gives us their, our instruction. Uh, but this is a person who many of us think was almost Christ-like in his uh, values and his demeanor and his respect for other people. He believed in a more perfect union. He was a super patriot in that regard because he wanted to... He, worked in peace and love. Nonviolence was central, central to how he uh, operated and recommended that the rest of us do. So uh, again, we've lost a great patriot. We've lost a person of, of goodness who truly lived uh, his beliefs, and his beliefs came uh, from his faith. And his faith, of course, gave us all hope. So we will miss him. Uh, there'll be beautiful tributes to him in the days ahead. His family did not want any of his services to begin before Reverend Vivian was put to rest. That will be tomorrow. But he was a fighter. He was a fighter, and he was a fighter on the, this coronavirus. And uh, we all agreed that uh, we as a nation should be doing more, and we should be more for every person in our country. That was what John Lewis was about, everyone. We do it for Thank his you legacy. Thank you for asking about him. Thank, Thank you, you so much to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Always great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. May I have money's back in there. Not that anyone's talking about this, but the Securities and Exchange Commission getting ready to push through what I regard as an outrageous rule change 
that would make the market a lot less transparent. I didn't even know myself until Kramer faved Dave Kossin, the chief U.S. equity strategist at Goldman Sachs, pointed it out in a terrific note last Friday. So what's happening here? Okay, right now, every institutional money manager with more than $100 million in assets has to disclose his positions once per quarter in a 13F form. That's been the rule for more than 40 years. I think it's terrific. It means we have some insight into what big money managers are doing. It gives us a, it's a, a learning. It's really a learning experience. If you believe Wall Street is important, you believe business is important. If you believe the market is important, then the public deserves to know who owns what. But now the SEC's proposed a new rule. They want to raise the reporting threshold from $100 million to $3.5 billion. In other words, a hedge fund with only $3 billion in assets under management wouldn't have to disclose its holdings every quarter. They could fly under the radar. And that's just, that's most hedge funds. Someone at the SEC had the bright idea that what we really need is less transparency and less disclosure. This is a needless giveaway to mid to large size money managers and an almost textbook example of regulatory capture, where government agencies end up doing the bidding of the industries they're supposed to supervise and regulate. In the SEC's press release a week and a half ago, they argued that they're simply updating an antiquated rule and providing much-needed relief for smaller money managers burdened by excessive compliance costs. I'm not convinced. The SEC adopted the $100 million disclosure threshold in 1978. If they only wanted to adjust that number for inflation, they'd be talking about a $400 million threshold. Instead, they want to adjust for the 35-fold increase in the size of the stock market, which is where they get that absurd $3.5 billion number. I mean, that's some real intellectual acrobatics. The SEC argues that they're doing this to help smaller money managers who struggle with compliance costs and also get hurt by copycats who look at these quarterly disclosures and mimic their strategies. Spare me. I ran a hedge fund for 14 years, and these disclosure requirements never stopped us from compounding at 24% annually after all fees, making our partners a fortune. By today's standard, we were on the smaller side. Never had more than a half billion under management until my last year because I like to stay nimble. There were plenty of burdensome regulations, but the need to disclose our holdings four times a year? Well, that was not one of them. First of all, you're allowed to wait 45 days after the end of the quarter before you file, meaning your short-term secrets are safe. Second, you don't actually have to disclose everything. You only have to reveal your longs. If there's a problem with the 13F requirements, is that they're not stringent enough. I want to see the shorts. Third, come on. A billion-dollar hedge fund is not a small operator to say nothing of a $3 billion hedge fund. It's nuts to think these guys need help, especially when that help comes at your expense. No, what's happening here is very simple. The SEC, under the leadership of Jay Clayton, cares more about helping institutions than protecting or helping individual investors. Being able to look up what most hedge funds actually own is, or are short is great for home gamers. These 13F forms are a treasure trove of useful information. Now they want to take a big chunk of that away just because it'll make life a lot easier for uh, some portfolio managers? Or actually, I think a little easier. The good news, the proposed rule change hasn't happened yet. We're only about 12 days into the 60-day comment period, where regular people can tell the SEC what they think and hopefully persuade them to back off from this very bad idea, something SEC Chairman Jake Clayton should take back as early as tomorrow in school box. It's so silly. Who the heck defends opaque behavior these days? Don't they have anything better to worry about? The SEC used to fight for transparency. Now is not the time to rule against it. David in California. David. Jimmy the Chiller Man, what's Yo, going on? What's happening? I'm just chilling in Napa. We miss you out here in the Bay Area. Oh, God. We come out four times a year. It's my happiest time of the year. Every time is always the best. Sorry we can't get out there because of the pandemic. We will get out there. That's well, pandemonium plus a pandemic. That's my new word for it. That's my new <laughs> well, word we look for forward it. to it. Thank you. Yeah. 
Well, Jim, uh, I'm a long-term investor and a long-time fan. And five years ago, I bought two healthcare stocks. One has been great, and one I'm wondering about. They are Thermo Fisher and Novartis. Now, Jim, I've been reinvesting the dividends, so I'm getting paid to wait. But do you think Novartis is worth holding on to for another no, five years? No, I've given up on Novartis. They've made too many mistakes, one mistake after another, after another, after another. I think the stock can go higher. I'm not saying that, but I think that it's one of the not great drug companies. Thermo Fisher is one of the best companies on earth. Mark Fisher was on TV earlier today, very self-effacing gentleman. Uh, they're not in the same league. I would prefer you. Actually, it's hard. I'm hard-pressed to find a drug company other than Teva that I like less than Novartis. Wow. Sorry. Chris in New York. Chris. We got Jim. This is Chris from Long Island. How are you today? I am good. How about you? Good, thank you. Uh, Thank you for helping to make me a better investor. I'm a member of your Action Alerts Plus for your charitable trust, and you've made me a lot of money. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad you're a member of Action Alerts Plus, too. That's terrific. Thank you. Um, my elderly mother bought a REIT back in 2008 or 2009, and this company has had some issues. Uh, there were many REITs that they offered. They merged three of the REITs together, and there was a class action lawsuit that was settled for $32 million for its shareholders. The name of this REIT is Apple Hospitality. Ticker is APLE. I know Apple. I have not liked it. I have not liked it pretty much since the show began. Uh, I don't like it now. I don't like the hotel business. I think that it's a, I own restaurants. I can tell you hotels and restaurants are the ones that's taken right on the chin. And I don't think you should be in that stock. All right. The public deserves to know who owns what. If you believe the market is important, then you got to fight for transparency. The SEC used to be our friend about this issue. Much more may have money hit. As COVID continues to rip through the South and Southwest, could one of the reasons top banks be impacted? Don't miss my sit down with First Horizon. Then, looking for some cloud control in this market? I'm eyeing an under-the-radar player in the space that could be considering. And all your calls rapid-fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. market has zero love for the bank stocks. I mean, whether we're talking about the spoiling money centers, you know, the J.P. Morgans of the world, or more focused regionals. Take one of my favorites, First Horizon National, which has become one of the largest banks in the South thanks to its recent merger with Iberia Bank. When the pandemic hit, this stock plunged from $16 to 6 over the course of four weeks. Since then, it's rebounded to 9 as of today, but it hasn't been able to get any lift since the latest major COVID outbreak that occurred in the South and Southwest. Some of the hardest hit places are right in First Horizon's backyard. Last Friday, the company reported noisy, but mostly stronger than expected quarter. With inline revenues, three-cent earnings beat off a 17-cent basis, dividend well covered. However, like we saw with the big money center banks, First Horizon stock actually got dinged on the news because Wall Street's terrified of potential loan losses. Still, the stock's pretty darn cheap. And even better, it's got a juicy 6.5% yield, which makes this one very enticing, as long as you believe they can keep making the numbers. So can they? Let's check in with Brian Jordan, the president and CEO of First Horizon National, get a better sense of the quarter and his company's prospects. Mr. Jordan, welcome back to Mad Money. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right, so, Brian, I'm a little confused. You bought Iberia at a very good price. It's a terrific franchise in a growth area of the country. You've managed already to take some costs out. You had very good loan-loss ratio. You have done everything right in a very good area, and your stock is down $7 since I've seen you. Uh, Can you make any sense of this? I can't. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a it's an interesting time to be trading bank stocks, and I would give that to anybody that's trying to do it. I think there's a combination of things. I think most particularly it's driven by the impact of COVID-19, impact on the economy. And and I think for a period of time there, we had some of the arbitrage trades in and out of the stock. But I think long term, the most important thing, again, Sprint, it is not a marathon, it is, is that we're going to create a tremendous amount of value. The cost savings that you referenced are starting to be realized We've got a leverage in this environment that others don't have. Taking out $170 million of cost will create a great deal of shareholder value. So I think over the next several months, we ought to see much better performance. Now, even when I look at all the criticized loans of Iberia and I look at the loans that you're worried about, I still come up with a fraction of the market value that you lost. Now, I know bad loans can continue. We can, we're not done this crisis, and we continue to get uh, more people with cases uh, of COVID, but it is hard for me to think that you're suddenly going to have two, say, two, three billion dollars in loan losses out of nowhere. Yeah, I agree with you. I think we have reserved substantially all of of the losses that would occur in, in our severely uh, adverse stress testing. I think we've built very, very strong reserves. I think we've got a portfolio that will perform as well or better than most. I think the other contributing factor, in addition to credit, is a, a zero interest rate policy, particularly for long, clearly is going to impact margins in financial services. And I think that gets factored in. But as you and I and have you and I have talked in the past, we have a couple of, of two or three really counter cyclical businesses that are doing very well in this business, in this environment. One is our fixed income sales and trading business and the other our, our mortgage-related businesses, a mortgage warehouse lending business, and a mortgage origination business. So I think we have some offsets to that. And as, as you point out, I think the credit's going to hold up well. Our revenue, PP&R, pre-provision net revenue continues to be strong. Uh, I'm optimistic about the back half of this year. Now, how about uh, loan creation? Before uh, the pandemic, obviously, uh, Tennessee, one of the best, but also Florida, fantastic, Louisiana. Um, is there been a slowdown in loans, and is there a concern that if we lose the $600 per week extra in unemployment, that things are going to look not so great a month from now? Yes, I think that's a, a real concern. If you if you set aside the obvious growth from the PPP or the Triple P program, the Treasury and SBA set up, loan growth has been reasonably modest. June, for example, we originated on a standalone basis, about $300 million or so of loans. That's mostly to existing customers. We're not seeing people who are really asking for much other than line increases or availability. So it's it's fairly benign environment in terms of demand. I think everybody is is worried a little bit about what we don't know about what we don't know, which is how this environment plays out, particularly related to the health care crisis that we're facing, and what does that mean to the economy? I'm optimistic that the Congress and the administration will get together on a package that will help bring a further bridge to the economy, i.e. helping people get from where we are today to a place past the pandemic when the economic recovery can start uninhibited. And uh, one last question, Louisiana, which I think is an unbelievable state and a tremendous growth state, 
was that's Iberia's uh, Iberia's king down there. When you've got, then I mean, are you going to spend more time in Louisiana? I mean, to me, it is the the state that has the most growth opportunities of the fifty states in the union right now. What are you doing down there? Yeah, we're excited about it. Our regional banking headquarters is in New Orleans, Louisiana, is a very important state to us. I am so anxious to get back on the road and spend time not only in Louisiana, but Florida, Georgia, all of these markets. We're excited about the opportunities we see in Louisiana. We think it's going to be a great story and and a big part of our future. So I'm excited to get there and and really to get back out on the road. Well, you should be. And I think the stock is kind of uh, a classic misprice because you've been such a good banker. Ryan Jordan's president, CEO of First Horizon National. Great to see you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me. All right. 6% yield, symbol FHN. I don't know. Seems a little cheap to me. That money's back in. Right. It is time to serve the and then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy, time for the lightning round. Of money. Let's start with Mark in Florida. Mark. Hi, Jim. From one masked man to another, it's a pleasure to speak with you. Always got to wear our masks. That's how we tamp it. That's how we tamp it. What's going on? Well, my question's about a stock I bought seven weeks ago. Two days after I bought it, they lost the lawsuit, and it went down quite a bit. I bought an equal amount to average down, and for the next six weeks, it went up and up and up, unbelievably kept going up. Two days ago, Emergent Biosolutions was added from the small cap 600 to the mid cap 400, and it plummeted. A third of the profit was gone just Well, don't worry about that. This is a very good company. I think you're in a really good situation. J&J likes them. I like them. Okay, let's go to Jeff in Massachusetts. Jeff. Hey, Jim, here's my son, Stephen. What a question for you. Sure. Nicola, more shares are becoming available and the price has dropped. Is it time to buy? Supply overwhelmed demand, which is not a good sign. Most of the good stocks are like Tesla, where demand is overwhelming supply. I think that you should stay away. There's much better places for you to put your money, and I'm glad you're starting early. Let's go to Alexander, New Jersey. Alexander. Hey, Dr. Chill. Yo. Thanks for uh, the guidance you give us, young investors, so we can have success for years to come. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'm trying to get some exposure into the new digital industrial revolution that's being referred to as Industry 4.0. Yes. Can I get thoughts on industrial software company PTC? Thank you. I think you should buy uh, Autodesk. I don't. I think Autodesk is much better than PC, PTC. Go for Autodesk. I know it, it, it's just a better run company. Let's go to David in Florida. David. Oh, yeah, Jim. How are you doing today? All right. How about you? I'm doing good, man. Uh, okay, I got a question. So with everything that's taking place this year, the firearm background checks are at a, hit a record in March and then broke that record in June. Uh, additionally, with COVID, we have a record demand on chlorine and bleach products. Now, the largest producer, Olin, um, is trading at all-time lows. Yeah, well, it hasn't it benefited one more? bit from this. I mean, it really is, David. It's not going to suddenly start benefiting. It is a disappointment. And I know that if you want a chemical company, the only one that I'm recommending right now, after Dow's had its big run, is DuPont. But Olin's been a disappointment. I don't want to put you in that house of pain. Let's go to Stephen in Florida. Stephen. Hey, Jim. Yeah. Long-time fan. Great program. One of the best. Thank you. I also read all your books and get into my millennial children. 
So I have a pick and shovel play for the biotech industry. Gene sequencers are the key to developing new therapies. New therapies for genetic and other diseases, as well as for developers of the new technologies for vaccine development. We wouldn't know what we know today about the coronavirus without companies like ILMN. Oh, Illumina. Illumina is sensational. I was going to say, I hope he says either Illumina or Thermo Fisher or Danaher. All three of those are good ones. Illumina is a great company. I can't believe that nobody snapped that one up when they had a chance. Let's go to Brett in California. Brett. Booyah, Daddy, Reverend Jim Bob Craver, how are you? I am good. How are you? Doing great. Hey, I'm a 28-year-old investor. I've been watching your show since I was 18, and I bought my first stock as a high school senior. There you go. Because you have made a ton of money, and I rely on your show every day. My stock, I've owned for five years. I'm down 25%. It does pay dividends, but I want to know what to do. Should I buy, sell, or hold? Stock is KMI, Kinder Morgan Energy Park. I don't like the pipelines. Uh, I don't care whether it's an MLP or a C Corp. I just think the pipeline business was a once great business without a lot of growth, and I do not think you should own that stock. If you do want oil, the ones I'm recommending, once again, are Pioneer because of Sheffield, Parsley because they have a great environmental footprint, and yes, Chevron because Mike Worth is as smart as they get. Teresa in Ohio, Teresa. Oh. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Well, here's a high-quality problem. Most of the Kramer Fave cloud stocks have soared so high they're practically in orbit. Okay, I still like a lot of them up here, but it's undeniable that the easy money's already been made. Witness Microsoft tonight. Uh, so we need to search for new cloud-based software stocks that haven't run as much, which brings me to a company called Medallia. This is a company with customer experience management. That's their platform. They harness the power of big data and artificial intelligence to help clients predict where their customers are going, what they might or might not want to buy, and what makes them stick around. According to Medallia, the software is so effective that it is a six-fold return on investment in three years, meaning it effectively pays for itself in less than six months. Now, this company came public a year ago and after roaring higher right out of the gate. It spent the next six months coming back to earth. Stock had started to stabilize, but then it got clobbered again during the COVID collapse. While medallions rebounded off its lows, it's still down 4% for the year. Maybe it's not getting enough credit. Earlier this month, Medallia reported a much better than expected quarter, 20% revenue growth, surprise profit. Yet the stock sold off anyway because management gave you a conservative outlook like so many other companies. Turns out that was a fabulous buying opportunity. So could this cloud stock be ready to play catch up with the rest of the group? Let's take a closer look with Leslie Stretch, the president and CEO of Medallia, to learn more about his company and where it is headed. Mr. Stretch, welcome to Mad Money. Thanks very much for having me, Jim. Great to be here. All right. So, sir, this is your first appearance on Mad Money. Uh, I'd like you to explain to people what experience management is and how companies are able to get a six-fold return by bringing you in. It's all about the proliferation of great digital technology now and the capture of a massive signal field of customer feedback, putting it into our platform, understanding it, creating actions, and firing those actions back out to people in the field that can actually make a difference and doing that securely at a massive scale. And it's not just survey, it's video, it's voice, it's all kinds of signals that we emit as we consume products and services in the day. All right, so I work for Comcast of this Obviously, CNBC is owned by Comcast. Uh, you are uh, you handle some of this experience management and uh, Comcast is a client. So what do we as Comcast users see that might be powered by Medallia? 
You know, it's really in the background, but what it's doing is it's monitoring network connections. It's looking at satisfaction of content. It's looking at pattern of consumption of content. And it's putting all of that information in the platform so that Comcast can make million dollar, $10 million, billion dollar decisions based on what customers are doing and having some estimate of where they will move next. Great customer, by the way. Thank you. Of course. Now, Dick Sporting Goods is a store I like very much, and the management is very forward-looking. They're always trying to figure out what people want. They also did take guns out after Parkland. Are you able to give them a sense of whether it's time to switch to a particular kind of clothes, particular kind of offering, uh, e-commerce, uh, which channel to use? Are those things that Medallia can help? Dick Sporting Goods are a super good user of feedback, highly intelligent user of feedback, and they're looking at customer patterns. You mentioned the gun decision and so on. And so they're looking at customer patterns and consumption patterns and also feedback and also safety in this time. You know, how can they enter the store safely? How can they have a pleasant uh, you know, shopping experience in a safe manner? And what do they want from the future as they open up more and more? So a great example of a, a super intelligent user real-time user of this valuable, powerful uh, data set. Would some, a client come to Medallia and say, listen, we want to make it so that uh, we pa- pass a rule that says everybody has to wear a mask. Will we lose X number of clients? Will people stop going here versus another place? Is that the kind of query that Medallia can handle? That's precisely the kind of query that Medallia can handle, and it can set up that dialogue so that they can talk really to their customers in a secure way, but also analyze millions of customer pieces of feedback, not just depend on a short, small focus group interaction. That's exactly right. Now, how do you integrate? You've got many different of the uh, partners that we talk about all the time. Do they bring you in? Uh, would a Salesforce bring Medallia in to say, listen, we got to get this part right? Or would they say, listen, we have Tableau data. We don't need Medallia. You know, we do. Actually, Tableau is a great uh, associated technology and partner of ours, too. We're a Salesforce partner and customer, ServiceNow partner and customer, and we do work hand-in-hand with those companies. Salesforce is just the best-in-class company that's all about who the customer is, especially with their Customer 360 initiative. We're about what the customer is doing and thinking and what they want to do next. It's a perfect complement, and we are the open partner uh, for them, the feedback partner in many of the large enterprises around the world that they serve. So uh, in the end, when people think, "How boy, that company is so smart, how do they know that I might like that? A lot of what they are doing is dependent upon what Medallia does for them. I think if you look at, across a spectrum of different industries, it doesn't matter whether it's financial services, retail, e-commerce, uh, whatever it may be, uh, it's we're there about who and we're about what and how the customer is thinking. And it's a really nice marriage of technologies that delivers you know, more than twice the value, I think, for customers when we partner. Wow, that's terrific. I'm glad I had you on. You know, when I first heard Medallia, I said, I've got to learn about this company. It sounds like you're doing many things that we need companies to do during a period where we might be in a bad recession. It's Leslie Stretch, President and CEO of Medallia. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. There's an intriguing company. See, now we got to go do work. We pick up the file, look at the last few quarters, last few conference quarters, calls it, and make a decision. But I thought it sounded darn interesting. Stick with Kramer. All right, Tesla was perfect. What can I say? It serves me up. Microsoft, okay, not absolutely perfect, but only because Microsoft has spoiled us by huge beat after huge beat. Azure, not as fast as people thought, but still incredibly fast. I think 
ultimately analysts will raise numbers, not lower numbers, and raise price targets, not lower price targets. So if the stock comes in at all, I think, what can I say? you got to buy the stock of Microsoft. Tesla, what can I say? I don't even know if it's a stock. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. I want people to feel like they just learned something. We have journalists in the far corners of the universe. I can't wait to get all of those resources under one hour-long newscast where we can deliver the facts of the day clearly and concisely in context and with perspective and tell people what's happening, what it all means. Get the truth, not the spin. The News with Shepard Smith. Subscribe to the podcast today.